All right, Steph. Yes. How are you? <laughs> oh, I'm doing good, Steph. I am. Uh, I got a lot here. <laughs> yeah, and and yep. it's been a while. So for the listeners, yeah, I'm sure sorry. Has. I I skipped on Austin a few times. It wasn't his <laughs> fault. But uh, we got a fault. new we got a new sh- a new format, <laughs> and it's it's like uh, no no more digital stuff. Just like good old. Here's the logo for the show. We'll put some we'll put some sounds in there, and I we also it. we also switched uh, from like this beautiful interface to Zoom, and Zoom uh-huh. free account gives us about forty minutes to talk. So uh, you better get going, mate. All right, we got a lot to cover here. Um, just to kind of, if anybody's watching this that hasn't that hasn't watched our show before, um, we basically debunk a bunch of. Um, branding, marketing, and advertising myths that are out there. Um, this one is going to be a little bit different. It's not going to be as direct, um, but we're going to cover the topic of design thinking. And uh, <clears throat> uh, I know that, Steph, you have some experience with design thinking. I have very limited experience, but I've been researching this topic for about three years now, um, uh, eventually hoping to to try to make a case against it um, uh, after seeing some red flags that kind of made me skeptical. Um, and I have been able to do that. I have done a lot of thorough research to try and, and see if there's an argument against this, this method for, um, for product design and other things. But, um, I know in our, in our industry, there's a lot of brand designers that also use it, but first, what's your experience with design thinking stuff? Ah, um, I read some books on it. Obviously (laughs) I was quite fascinated by it. Um, some interesting like things like the lean startup which isn't exactly like uh, design thinking and then obviously doing lots of workshops myself I was always interested in this idea of design thinking mm-hmm. I don't know if I actually like I'm an expert on the the theory behind it and what it really means but I've right. dabbled in it and read about it and played around with it for sure yeah well the title of this talk is a little homage to um to our friend Natasha Jin at Pinagram. She's a designer who gave a talk on design thinking. Um, uh, This is going to go much deeper than that. But uh, yes, design thinking is bullshit and overrated and oversimplified and overblown and overkill and a boondoggle, which is another uh, great article by a historian named Lee Vinzel and an enemy of distinctiveness, which is kind of stolen from Adam Ferrier, which kind of uses the case against it from a differentiation standpoint. Uh, So here's what we're going to cover, Steph. We got a lot to cover here. (laughs) Who knows how many parts we're going to have when we're limited on time. But what is design thinking? We're going to start with that. I'm going to to make a case against design thinking. We're going to talk about why it's so popular despite a, a severe lack of any evidence of its effectiveness. Um, we're going to talk about the dangers of design thinking for brand identity design and why I believe that that might be the worst possible application of this process. Um, and then finally, I'm going to deliver my oversimplified alternative hexagons for success. <laughs> wow. I hope we can uh, yeah. get through part one today. <laughs> uh, yeah, I know. I know. I know. Okay. So before we start talking about what design thinking is, let's talk about the origins of design thinking. And there's a very interesting story here. Um, so in the 1960s, uh, there were um, two design theorists, uh, Wes Churchman and uh, Christopher Alexander. 
who were starting to think about design and how we can tackle complicated problems um, through design. And they started to think, well, maybe there's a universal method that all designers have always used. And if we can kind of create this formulaic equation um, to get to the answer whenever we're designing a product, then then we can have this really great template that we can give people to follow really exactly and come up with great design. And, and, and this could even venture outside of design specifically in other areas as well of business. And they they wrote books on it. They wrote essays on it. Um, they hosted a conference where they got design theorists together and tried to figure out if we could do this. And then during a seminar, this man named Horst Riddle walks in and he gives a talk <laughs> on this whole notion of a universal approach to design. And he makes a very compelling case that there is no universal approach to design. In fact, his case is so compelling, he convinces West Churchman and Christopher Alexander to come on his side. Christopher Alexander is even quoted saying, forget it, forget it all. <laughs> uh, he might have used different language, I'm not sure, but all of the work that he had done up to this point to try to solidify this, this like really universal process for design, he gave up on, took Horse Riddle's side, and uh, just a little side note, Horst Riddle is the one who came up with the idea of wicked problems. If you've ever heard of this concept, wicked versus kind problems, wicked problems don't have a true false solution. Um, they're really complex, whereas kind mm. problems are a little simpler. Um, and ironically, uh, we'll get to this and, how, and why it's ironic, but a lot of design thinkers actually use that notion of wicked um, problems without really knowing the full history of Horst Riddle and his beliefs. Um, so there's this really interesting debate in the beginning of the 1960s, it's really shut down almost entirely by Horst Riddle. <laughs> and then after Horst Riddle, these other guys follow suit. And the conversation's kind of bouncing around a little bit, but it's pretty much settled until 1987, when a man named Peter Rowe decides to actually study, is there a universal method? Is, you know, at this point, West Churchman, Christopher Alexander, and Horst Riddle, are they all right? Um, and so he decides to, to interview a bunch of designers and, and to see if he can come up with a universal approach to design. And he, it turns out he's not able to find a universal approach to design. And the funny part about this is in his study, he is the first one to use the term design thinking. And that's where we're kind of at um, at this point. Um, so hmm. what is, what is, how does he use this term? Well, his, his case study is actually called design thinking, but his conclusion of this study is, and I quote, there is no design thinking. <laughs> okay. So the first time design thinking is used, he's saying it doesn't exist, <laughs> which but is the really words, fascinating. The words exist now. <laughs> the words exist now, right? So here comes IDEO. And IDEO is, is uh, before it's called IDEO, it's, it's a design firm started by Kevin Kelly and Dean Hovey. Um, the the kind of origin story of IDEO is that uh, at one point, uh, they are randomly introduced to Steve Jobs while Steve Jobs is trying to kind of uh, revolutionize computers. Um, they are tapped to design uh, the Apple mouse, the first mouse that that Apple will use. Um, and the legend is that that it's a successful design project and they're the ones behind this this Apple mouse. We're going to go into further debunking that uh, that entire origin story. But after this, they start to get a lot of um, of Internet startups coming to them. This is the early 90s, mid 90s, late 90s. Um, before you know it, almost all of their clients are 
internet startups. Um, and the bubble, as you know, the internet bubble, the dot-com bubble is, is growing and growing and growing. IDEO is seeing massive success and then it pops. And all of a sudden, IDEO's revenues start going downhill fast. All of these internet startups, um, uh, you know, the, the bubble pops, right? So people aren't as interested yeah. in internet startups for a while, right? Um, and so David Kelly has this uh, epiphany, as he calls it, um, where what if we, instead of instead of selling us ourselves as a design firm who can design products, what if we still design products, but we really sell our methodology for design and we can come up with this, this, this universal methodology for this is how design is done and this is how it can be applied. Ironically, <laughs> uh, Kevin Kelly is completely unaware by all accounts of Wes Churchman, Christopher Alexander and Horst Riddle and totally independent of them. He calls this new methodology design thinking. <laughs> okay. And so, so just really interesting story. Um, so this is really the design thinking that we know of and are familiar with today. This is really the mm. origin of that phrase as it's used in most cases. Now, this methodology of design thinking really came from, from David Kelly, even though it was used before and it was pretty much settled debate <laughs> that there was no universal approach or method to design thinking. Okay. So that's the origin story. Interesting so far, huh? Very interesting. I'm 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 curious to the further evolutions and your beef with it. <laughs> all right. So first of all, you know, let's let's define what is design thinking. So design thinking, this is kind of my definition, is a human-centered approach to design that attempts to prescribe a method for thinking as designers allegedly always have, even if you're not a designer, right? So it's it's really this prescription. <laughs> it's a, it's a very that... un, unbiased definition, I must say. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Uh, it's this prescription that you don't have to be a designer. You can still think like a designer. And mm. we know this because designers have always thought this particular way. Of course, designers have not always thought one particular way. Um, uh, well, maybe that's debatable. Maybe you're still out there believing um, you're not convinced by uh, those early design theorists work. But this is essentially what what I, I kind of see as design thinking. Um, where can design thinking be applied or where is it most often applied? It's usually applied with new startup ideas, new product ideas, product improvements, education, brand design, which is where I became familiar with it for the first time, marketing and advertising, business model creation or design, and even entertainment more recently. Um, and so what is it? <laughs> Here's what we're going to talk about. All right. So ah. these are the uh, hexagons of design thinking. Sometimes they're uh, an infinity symbol. Sometimes they're circles. There's you know all the different kinds of variations here. But um, essentially, you first, or, or you, maybe not first, as, as they say, but you empathize with the user. Um, mm -hmm. So who's going to use this product? Who's who's ha Who has this problem that we need to solve? What are their lives like? What's the day in the life of them? You, usually there's some sort of customer persona. There's a narrowing down of who this user is. There's often talk of extreme users. So who's going to be a master of this product and how can they be satisfied with it? And who's going to really struggle um, to use the product and how can they use it. Um, then you're defining the problem. You're really narrowing down what is the problem that we're really trying to solve and maybe what's even the problem underneath the problem. Um, <clears throat> then we move into the ideate phase where you're just essentially throwing up a bunch of ideas in a brainstorming session on the wall to see what sticks. Uh, this this 
uh, process can include uh, many things such as brainstorming, brainwriting, brain dumping, body storming, brainwriting, sketch storming, game storming, cheat storming, or crowd storming. So any combination of the word brain and storm, you're good to go. You have a good approach uh, for this ideate phase. You throw up wild ideas, things, you know, there are no bad ideas. You don't shoot down mm. people's ideas. You just throw up crazy stuff. Um, and then at the end, you kind of challenge your initial assumptions. Were we right about the user? Were we right about the problem? You know, have we, do we have more clarity um, with this? If not, we can go back to those phases and, and redefine those problems and re-empathize with the users. And then you have the prototype phase where there's kind of high fidelity prototypes and low fidelity prototypes. Um, you essentially just use whatever materials you have on hand. This can be cardboard, styrofoam, Legos. If you're a UX designer, it could be, um, you know, Webflow or Figma. Um, essentially, you're, you're creating a prototype to then test with your ideal customer personas test with your users to see, is it intuitive? Does it make sense? Do they like it? Um, and so essentially you're, uh, you're asking the users who are often really unreliable narrators for feedback. Um, there's all kinds of, you know, issues with, with relying on users um, to, to really know why they're thinking what they're thinking or why they're doing what they're doing. Um, this is really the foundation of you and I's critiques of, the branding industry is that we fundamentally misunderstand users by because we listen to them as opposed to thinking about why are they really making those decisions. Um, so if if done carefully, obviously this phase could work. You know, if you're just mm -hmm. really observing the users and you're researching the market, um, but in many cases you're just simply building some sort of cardboard prototype and then asking a user to to go through it and then you're asking them for feedback. Um, there's some parameters and 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 barriers to 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 kind of avoid biases, but I don't think they're very strong personally from what I've researched. Um, and then you have your solution. So the real idea of design thinking is that it's fast and, and cheap. You fail fast and cheap, right? So you create these prototypes that, um, you know, you can test over and over again. You, you Sometimes you can create hundreds of prototypes. So you're failing before you're actually investing your real resources into the product and moving it into the market. Um, yeah. That's the ideal. So what does design thinking typically look like? It involves other um, other li lingo. There's there's also there's very specific lingo to the design thinking um, process: uh, deep design, body storming, co-creation, customer journeys, radical innovation. There's just all kinds of yeah. little words that have been tacked on. This is a slide from Natasha Jin's talk at Adobe at Adobe conference called Design Thinking is Bullshit. Strongly recommend people um, read, uh, watch that talk, but we're going to go so much deeper than Natasha Jen goes. I think she <laughs> barely scratched the surface and could have gone a lot deeper. Visually, this is often what it looks like. It's a whiteboard with post-it oh, notes. Yeah, I've done <laughs> for, that for, many times. Oh yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> for whatever reason, design thinkers almost always use a whiteboard with post-it notes. <laughs> we we so, just get we. It, it's arousing to see the different <laughs> colors and the it markers. Is. It's just something like super, and you've got to have like sharpies to write on the post-its. It's very important mm. from the You're actual right. it can't, it can't be sharpie brand. Pen, yeah. 
No, no, no. It needs to be sharp. <laughs> so, so Natasha, this is again um, kind of a critique of Natasha Jens, which is it's kind of silly to put design into a two by two inch square um, to box it in. Um, I think that could be a strong argument. It could be a little loose. It depends on really how you look at things. It's not like post-it notes are a bad tool. Um, it's just interesting that every design thinker uses them as their primary tool, at least in the ideation phase. Yeah. Um, so a while ago, three, four years ago, when I first started looking into brand design and the strategy behind brand design, I got interested in design thinking like you probably have as well. Um, I also would see, you know, went to workshops at different conferences, um, startup conferences, um, talking about how design thinking can be applied for new innovative ideas um, and startups. But, but there were a couple of red flags that started eating away at me early on. Um, even when I was a brand love enthusiast, I saw red flags with design thinking, which is really funny. I'm a complete opposite. Um, uh, I'm the complete opposite of brand love as a strategy today, but there are still red flags with design thinking. The two primary red flags are first, design thinking is rarely criticized. Mm. I cannot tell you how hard it is if you're just doing a Google search, which is really the best I have at this point to find critiques of design thinking, it's, it's nearly impossible. Mm. Um, it's, it's fascinating to me how few people are critiquing it and how, uh, difficult it is to see those critiques. And part of that could just be Google's terrible algorithm, <laughs> uh, where you could say design thinking, you could search for design thinking is a myth. And then what you're going to get is myths that people believe about design thinking that aren't yeah. true. You're not going to get design thinking in itself is a myth, right? You're not mm. going to find results like that. So you really have to like scour the internet. And I went into some some deep holes. Um, I actually ended up finding the dark, we're getting, the dark web. The, the dark web. <laughs> Where design I ended thinking up actually, is. <laughs> I ended up actually finding some like early memos um, of IDEO staff uh, in regards to the Apple mouse, which tells a different story than IDEO tells about how that hmm. mouse was created. Um, but, it, it, you know, I had to find, I think it was some like dark hole of Stanford's website with like really bad typography, you know, bright neon green with like, you know, gradient shadows. And it, it was like clearly from the 1990s. Um, <laughs> it's very difficult to find criticisms of design thinking. Luckily, so, we have there, uh, Detective Austin on the job. We, exactly, exactly. Um, so there are some notable critics of design thinking. Um, I've already mentioned Natasha Jin. She's a designer at Pentagram, so a designer at one of the most successful design firms mm -hmm. really of all time. Um, and uh, her main critique is that is that design is messy. It involves people critiquing each other's design constantly. Um, it can't be boxed into a formula. Um, that's kind of generally her critique. There's a lot more specifics there, but, um, Lee Vinsel is, uh, kind of the first person that I found in a roundabout way who is questioning design thinking and then, um, realized that really he's been questioning innovation, which that's going to be the first critique mm. we're going to have with design thinking is innovation as a successful business strategy. Um, but he's a historian who has studied technological advances over time. Um, and he's found that as we talk more about innovation, we're actually less innovative. So um, innovation has actually been on a pretty sharp decline since the 1970s, according to most historians. And yet talk of innovation is at an all time high. Um, and he has a great article called Design Thinking is a Boondoggle, um, where he kind of tackles design thinking from that component. 
Uh, and then we have Adam Ferrier. He's a marketer. He's actually a differentiation marketer, um, from what I can tell, at least. And his critique of design thinking is that if every advertiser or marketer is using design thinking and they're trying to get into the emotional and physical needs of users and trying to get underneath that, users have the same emotional and physical needs for every brand within a category. And so every one of these uh, marketing firms are going to come up with the same solutions um, because the the needs are the same for users. Mm. And, and, and in that, in that way, you end up, um, uh, you, you, you find it very difficult to kind of, you know, um, uh, diverge from uh, really what um, uh, users are really wanting. So, so he, he has an example of Twitter, you know, nobody really wants Twitter to be confined to however many characters. And yet, because it's so different in that way, it's become successful. So that's his mm. critique of design thinking. Um, so I will be critiquing design thinking as a tool for business success in the following contexts. So new product design. So coming up with, if you're an established company, some new product that you want to release into the market, um, branding and advertising. So using design thinking to either design a brand or to think about a brand's purpose or a brand's positioning. Um, and then to use design thinking to advertise to users by empathizing with their needs. We're going to critique that as a as an approach. Um, and then we're also going to start uh, I'm also going to critique um, design thinking for starting a new business. So you see design design thinking um, used a lot in startup accelerators, um, where uh, essentially yeah. you can come up with this great new startup idea. And if you use design thinking, then you could come up with an innovative idea that no one else is using yet. Um, and I'm going to also debunk that whole idea that there's a much better approach, which is essentially a much more boring approach, but a more effective approach um, to starting a new business. And my second critique or my, the second red flag that really popped up for me uh, with design thinking is that design thinking has rarely been researched at all and even more rarely researched for effectiveness. So there is some research into design thinking, but almost all of it is and, and very little research, I, I might add. But almost all of it is how can we improve design thinking? Mm. What are different aspects of design thinking that aren't quite hitting the mark? Um, very few people are actually researching, is design thinking effective? Does it actually work? Um, we're actually going to look at a study from the Hasso Plattner Institute later on, which is actually the institute behind Stanford's D School. Um, IDEO and the Hasso uh, essentially founded the Hasso Plattner Institute and the Hasso Plattner Institute started Stanford's D School, and um, Stanford's D School is really, um, I would say, credited as as bringing design thinking into the mainstream. After IDEO started that, um, that task, they have actually researched the effectiveness of design thinking, and they have concluded that there is a major, major flaw in design thinking as a method, which we will get into later. There's actually a, a couple different flaws. Um, uh, of course, their conclusion wasn't scrap design thinking. It was, how can we use this to make design thinking yeah. better? Um, but I, I think it's a pretty compelling case to scrap design thinking in, in many cases. Um, um, now, I will say design thinking can work in some places, in some contexts. I think the vague ideas behind design thinking, um, you know, I don't necessarily have anything against those vague ideas. Um, but I think that uh, especially, you know, five-day design sprint workshops are a pretty terrible way to um, to innovate um, and to even, you know, marginally or incrementally improve products. Um, we're going to get into all of that. But 
that my second red flag that design thinking has rarely been researched is quite interesting because in other words, what does this mean? Design thinking has rarely been tested, <laughs> which is a key component of design thinking. Uh, in reality, uh, and, and even the Hassel Plattner Institute in their study pointed this out, that if we're going to be design thinkers, we have to, you know, we have to have, we have to dialogue between design thinking and empirical research. Um, and that was really their biggest, their biggest case there after the study was completed, um, that we must continue to test design thinking. That study was done in 2011. It hasn't really happened since. Again, very few people are actually testing design thinking. So let's get into my case against design thinking. It is twofold. The first case is that innovation is an overrated business strategy. So I don't believe innovation is necessary for business success. I don't believe innovation, or at least a, a mind towards innovation, gives you an edge over other competitors. We're going to talk about all of the reasons for that. What's the reality of innovation versus the myth of innovation? What does it really look like versus what we want it to look like? Um, and then the second case is that design thinking is a poor tool for innovation. So even if we like the goal of innovation or the, the goal of innovation has been proven to be a worthwhile goal, design thinking is, has a lot of inherent flaws that keep it from achieving innovation as a goal. And then I believe design thinking is highly risky for identity design. Um, there's we're going to get into that. Um, uh, essentially, if the Ehrenberg Bass Institute is correct, that meaningless distinctiveness is key to design thinking or, or to, to brand identity design and brand growth, then design thinking is just about the furthest thing that you'd want to use to come up with a meaningless, distinctive brand. <laughs> um, so <laughs> let's start with innovation is an overrated business strategy. We're not going to be able to get through all of this because of our time limit, but we're going to get as you far have, as we you can. You have uh, eight minutes, Austin. I know. I see Go. that. I see that. Go. <laughs> this the might be a six-parter. We literally got a, a notification now saying you have eight minutes yep. left, so go. <laughs> well, let me go then, Steph. Come on, stop talking. Here we go. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> okay. So the idea that innovation is the key to business success could be traced back largely to one book. And even you mentioned Lean Startup. Lean Startup is very heavily rooted in The Innovator's Dilemma by Clayton, or by Clayton Christensen. So what is the case in The Innovator's Dilemma? The case in The Innovator's Dilemma, this is where you start hearing the term disruptive innovation or disruption. It really comes, it started really with Clayton Christensen's book, The Innovator's Dilemma. His case is that small, scrappy, innovative brands that are doing things in a different way or creating new products that haven't existed really in the market um, uh, always disrupt big, entrenched, established businesses. It doesn't mean that if you're a big, entrenched, established business, you're screwed. It just means you have to be more agile, which is a word often used, um, in order to, to keep up with these small, scrappy startups that can just move all around because they're small. They can do whatever they want. They can bounce back and nimble. forth. Um, they're nimble. They're agile, right? Um, and so uh, if you're an entrenched business or, or, or a brand, you really need to always be on the lookout for disruptors. And if you have a new idea, you can, you have the recipe for disruption. Um, really the, 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 
core of this is very much a fear-based theory. It's, 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 it's certainly a, if you don't do this, then you are going to be screwed. It's very much rooted in fear. Um, and, and Clayton Christensen has been very successful pushing this whole idea of disruptive innovation. Um, but like most popular business books, Christensen's theory has not been able to predict the future. This is extremely important. I've, I've talked about brand purpose in a, in a, previous article that I wrote where um, Jim Stengel and his book Grow cherry picked a bunch of data. And it turns out that um, the future after his book was released, uh, many of the businesses that he thought were going to be successful weren't had below average market um, performance. The same is true with Christensen's book, The Innovator's Dilemma. Most of his examples of disruptors either aren't around today or have been far less successful than his examples of entrenched and established companies. So in almost every example of his original book, The Innovator's Dilemma, his prediction has been proven wrong. Those companies that disrupted the industry, maybe, maybe they disrupted the category, didn't actually disrupt the big players that were entrenched in that category. And it's not because we'll, we'll get into the circular logic behind disruption in a second. But Christensen even started a $3.8 million fund based in his theory of disruption. Then the fund was liquidated when it performed 15% below average market expectations. And here's the killer stuff. Christensen famously predicted the iPhone would never take off. Why? Mm. It wasn't. This is his quote truly disruptive and he's right it wasn't truly disruptive that's why it was successful we're going to get into that <laughs> um, <laughs> but clearly his theory has been debugged by himself in many cases and just by history um, jill lapore of the new yorker in her takedown of christensen called his theory of disruptive innovation a circular argument she says if an established company doesn't disrupt it will fail and if it fails it must be because it didn't disrupt when a startup fails, that's a success since epidemic failure is a hallmark of disruptive innovation. When an established company succeeds, that's only because it hasn't yet failed. And when any of these things happen, all of them are only further evidence of disruption. <laughs> Sounds it, a little familiar. <laughs> Here are some other debunked business books that you might have heard of. Jim Stengel's Grow, In Search of Excellence, Good to Great, Built to Last, Start with Why, Grit, Outliers, Purple Cow, The Brand Gap, Positioning, and Lean Startup have all been at least major cases that they've made in these books have been thoroughly debunked. Speaking of, and this is how we will end it, I highly recommend ah. everyone reads The Halo Effect. You actually introduced me to this book really early on. And next part we will talk about what is the reality of innovation if it is not this theory of disruption if that that theory is inaccurate and unable to predict the future wow wow man <laughs> you, you did your homework i'm, I'm you really like it curious. so far huh? <laughs> it's like a great it, it's actually great i like the cliffhanger also so i'm as much curious <laughs> hopefully as the the watchers uh the audience of the show um for, from my end like i think obviously I mean, right now I'm in a like a, a tech, high, fast-growing yeah. environment, and and it's interesting to see. Like, I think from a purely design designer standpoint, they they can use the framework to good for good when they're defining problems, empathizing with users. I think there's a lot of good in it that makes sense that we maybe mm -hmm. automatically do, but I agree mm -hmm. that there's also so much 
trouble with this stuff and that a lot of people take it in the wrong way. And so I, I'm happy to dive into what's wrong with it and, and, and see more of it. Yeah, I'm excited to share share it with you, and uh, I'll keep I'll keep going down the rabbit hole as I slowly build. Uh, probably at this point, part four, five, and six. <laughs> this this might be something that will later be referenced in like uh, the the history of like design thinking. <laughs> like uh, it's hey, eight maybe. November, and Austin Frankie officially killed it with his uh, deep critique. <laughs> you know, if you are one of those Wikipedia editors, you could add me to the criticisms <laughs> on the Voila. Wikipedia page. So far, there's just the really Lee Vinsel and Natasha. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> to the lonely wolves. I'm, I'm, I'm happy to uh, see we're debunking some very, very big topic. Uh, so I'm curious to see what's next. And uh, thanks for this great episode. Awesome, of course. <laughs> Thank you.